Good morning. It is always a, a pleasure and a privilege of mine to serve us from the pulpit. I'd ask that you would turn with me in your copies of God's holy word to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, where you can turn it to it in your, in your bulletins and find it there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 17, and we're going to read through the end of, of chapter 3. The passage this morning is, is a bit unique in this respect, that in the middle of this letter, uh, where we usually are used to hearing from Paul, the apostolic theologian, if you will, uh, what we come across is something far less didactic and far more personal. We hear, if you will, from Paul, the pastor. Some writers have even described this section of God's Word as, as wordy and, and rambling and an overflow of Paul's emotions onto the page. This is one of the most ex extended pieces of uh, personal correspondence that we have in Paul's letters, but it is so rich and things to teach us, because here we get to see how Paul's theology, how Paul's view of reality affects the way that he reacts, the way that he feels, the way that he loves. So what this passage also teaches us, after all, is that there really is no distinction between Paul the theologian and Paul the pastor. So let's look at this piece together of, of theological, personal correspondence. This is God's holy, inspired, living word. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in chapter 17, or verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you, yes, our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 
as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray together. Our good, our giving, our loving, passionate Father, you have done such a good work, a gracious, wonderful work by saving us, by giving your Son to us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would perform the miracle of working this word into our hearts. We ask that what we know not, you would teach us, and that you would make us into what you would have us be. Be with us this Lord as we read, as we think, as we listen, and transform us by these words into the image of your holy, glorious Son. Pray all these things in your Son's good name. Amen. So let's just take some time to start this morning by, by expounding this text by way of, of considering the, the personal or the, the events that gave rise to this piece of personal correspondence, the, the, the context here. Where did this piece of this letter come from? We can put this picture together based on what we have in this letter and what we have from Luke in Acts 17 when he describes Paul's visit to Thessalonica. So hot off the heels of being persecuted, imprisoned, and eventually kicked out of Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they arrive in Thessalonica. And it's almost as soon as Paul plants his church there that the devil catches up with him, if you will, and, and persecution breaks out. The, the citizens there realize that Paul is very much unlike the traveling philosophers they're used to hearing, and that his message is radically opposed to their Greek way of life. And so some of the citizens there, they, they drag some of Paul's converts before the city rulers. They strip them of their possessions and their status. They cry out, Acts tells us, that these traveling vagabonds have turned the whole world upside down. <laughs> and they have come here also. So as the pressure turns up, this now poor and, and young and, and fledgling congregation realizes that for the sake of, of everyone's safety, for the sake of good wisdom, Paul and his companions, they need to leave. And so just as persecution brought them to Thessalonica, so also it propelled their ministry onto Berea. Now many commentators are, are very quick to point out how close Paul must have been to the Thessalonians, right? These letters of first and second Thessalonians, they are so personal. Thirteen times in, in this short letter, after all, Paul calls these believers brothers. That's how he refers to them over and over. In chapter 2, he spoke of his own ministry as that of a nursing mother. He also spoke of it as that of a, an encouraging father. 
And if you look at verse 17, Paul says he is torn away, but, but literally that word means to become an orphan. So, so Paul says he was orphaned from his Thessalonian family when he had to leave. So as a sibling, as a brother, as a mother, as a father, as an orphaned child, Paul has a family bond with the Thessalonians every which way. However, it's interesting that of all of Paul's ministries, Paul spent perhaps the shortest or one of the shortest amount of times in Thessalonica. He just didn't have the time to develop the kind of deep relationship that he would have with Timothy or, say, the, the elders in Ephesus. To be sure, right, bonds are forged in the face of adversity. However, all of this family language that Paul uses, it must be grounded in something deeper than Paul's personal affections. As he speaks here to the church, he is not merely expressing his feelings, but he is assuring them of his conviction about what kind of relationship they have. Look at verse 17 again. This, this orphaning, Paul says, could only be true in terms of personal presence. Paul can say with conviction that it is temporary and that it is not, he is not cut off from them in heart. Not simply because he feels so strongly, but because he and the Thessalonians, both being united in Christ, are in a bond together as the family of God. They are united so Firmly. So Paul's use of all of this family language, if you will, is not simply a rhetorical appeal to, to sentimentality, but to a reality. But of course, I, I suppose I need to say that it is a sentimental reality. We don't want to distinguish, distinguish these things. But for now, let's, let's go back to the apostles. Right, so persecution sends them to preach in Berea. But eventually, a similar kind of thing happens there, and so Paul ends up leaving and going to Athens. Now, Silas and Timothy are still in, in Berea, however. So now persecution has put Paul alone into the heartland of pagan philosophy. Now, during all of this, after they had left Thessalonica, as you can imagine, the job there feels unfinished. Verses 17 and 18, right? They tell us that they tried eagerly with earnest to go back and support the church. Switching to the first person, Paul writes, I, Paul, tried again and again. You can imagine behind these words, Paul, now even further off alone in, in Athens, trying to plot a way back to the Thessalonian church. And we don't know why exactly Paul wasn't able to get back, but as Jack mentioned for us, Paul isn't interested in sharing that information with us. He would just rather have us know that whatever it was, it was a work of evil. In other places, Paul will say things like, I wanted to come to you, but the Lord has, has led me elsewhere. That's not the kind of thing that's happening here. His calling is to go, to minister, to support the Thessalonians, but Satan is hindering. That word for, for hinder, to hinder, is, is a technical term from warfare. 
It, it refers to the, the act of cutting up the road behind you or filling it with obstacles in order to block the enemy's path. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. The imminent threat against this little Thessalonian church, in Paul's view, is that Satan could win the battle for their hearts. That the tempter would reclaim the Thessalonians to turn back from the living God to their idolatry. Paul's angst then is not simply one of distance from a beloved family. And his angst is not simply that of a job left undone. It is an angst grounded in the urgency of warfare. It is an angst grounded in the fact that Satan has divided up now this family in arms. Satan has driven Paul and his companions away from Thessalonica, and then he has spread Paul and, and Timothy and Silas out between Berea and, and Athens. He is hindering their ability to regroup, if you will, and he is attacking them when they are most vulnerable. We go on to read, right, that Paul and his partners are also under affliction at the same time as the Thessalonians. So the desperation in Paul's rhetoric flows from the urgency and awareness of warfare. Paul is aware of the invisible. He is aware that he has a family relationship to other believers. He is aware that he has a family obligation to these other believers, and he is aware of the fact that his family is under attack constantly. People of God, do you have this kind of awareness amongst yourselves? So eventually, Silas and Timothy, they do leave Berea. They join Paul in Athens. But then Paul says he couldn't bear it any longer. He, he couldn't bear it. This is the imagery of, of a vessel that is so full that it is about to, it's about to burst. So look at the apostolic battle strategy, if you will. They realize that they need to divide again. So chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. They were willing, eventually, to make the sacrifice, to give of themselves, to send Timothy, as it were, across the battlefield to shore up the faith of the Thessalonians. And we read that he goes there, he exhorts the church there, and he returns to Athens, and he brings with him the good news about the Thessalonians' faith, and how they too long to be with Paul and, and Silas. And so just as the apostles' message was was sent to encourage the Thessalonians in the midst of their affliction, so also the Thessalonians, in turn, gave faithful encouragement to Paul and Silas in their affliction. What we have here, this, this picture, what Paul is describing is the reciprocal model, the reciprocal model of how the Christian family is strengthened how we are to reciprocally be edified so that we can endure. We see here a, a back and forth of encouragement and prayer in the family bond of fellowship in the face of Satan's afflictions, in the face of the tempter. So we've seen Paul's heartfelt correspondence here. We've considered the crisis that is taking place, how Paul feels about it, how he, how he reacts. But at this point, there is something then that we cannot 
miss. Do not read this text. Do not look at this text and see the passion and the, the personalism and the earnestness and overlook the fact that, that all of this loving personalism turns on a deep, Christ-grounded logic. We might ask it this way. What is the principle behind the personalism? What is the principle behind the personalism? Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Here Paul begins, for, or because, or this is the reason. This is the principle behind the personalism. He says this, for what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't it you? Yes, for you are our glory and our joy. Paul is not simply saying that he feels as though the Thessalonians are his pride and joy. In other words, he is not telling them here how much he cares for them. He is telling them why he must care for them. Because they are, in fact, his glory. They are his hope his joy, his crown, and his glory. This is why Paul cannot but help, but give of himself to the Thessalonians. And this is why Paul cannot but be comforted at news of the Thessalonians' faith. This piece of Scripture is in the Bible to teach us about the reciprocal nature of the Christian life. It describes the way we are called to love and give ourselves to one another, to live out the reality of our family bond. This calling does not simply come from the fact that Christians are supposed to be selfless people. In other words, our care, our love for one another is not simply exercising a good virtue It is living out a reality. It is, if you will, making visible the invisible bond. That I am in you and you are in me. This is the the reality we live out. We are in each other because we are both in Christ together. Or to put it in Paul's terms here, my glory is your glory. And your glory is my glory because we share in Christ's glory. I have joy. I rejoice in your faith and you rejoice in my faith because in both cases, Christ, our head, is glorified. You are my hope and I am your hope because if you are not standing next to me on the last day, then I and the body, we have lost something. And I am your crown, and you are my crown of boasting, because I'm not going to be standing there on that day, proud of my own achievements, but proud of what Christ 
has done in you through my ministry and of what he has done in me through your ministry. Paul believes that this bond is as real as anything else. Chapter 3, verse 8. Look at how profoundly Paul summarizes this. He says, we live. We are alive if you are standing fast. You may be able to put it like this, that Paul understands if the Thessalonians' faith is at risk, he is at risk. So we've been looking at the events and the personal correspondence here, and and this is the theological principle that, that lies underneath of it. Those who are united to Christ by faith are also united to one another. Or we could put it like this. Paul Paul is putting this in terms of the unity of of what the reality of this this unity will look like on the day of judgment. On the last day, we will be radiating the glory of one another and rejoicing in one another. We might say that that last day, that judgment day, will be a community event. We're all going to be there reveling in one another's glory. Elsewhere, Paul describes this unity in in other terms. Here, it's from the perspective of that last day. Elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians, for example, he talks about us as the one body that that labors as a unit. We each have diverse gifts. Some of us are hands, some are eyes, some are ears, with Christ as the head. Elsewhere, he talks about our unity in relationship to God's presence among us. We are collectively the temple of God with Christ as the cornerstone. Elsewhere he talks about the unity of believers long and and throughout history by comparing it to an an age long, a centuries growing tree in Romans 9-11 through that believers are grafted into. John will talk about this as as a, a, a plant that we're all branches of being fused into the vine that is Christ. This is the same theological reality that Paul has in view with co, in co-worker. We are all together employed in the church's job of carrying the gospel to a lost world. We are fellow soldiers, he often calls his companions, because we are all enlisted in God's army defending one another against the schemes of Satan, defending one another in our spiritual war. And we are siblings adopted into Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are a family in arms. Do you fight for your family? Do you pray for your family? Are you at peace with your family? For whom Christ gave himself to make peace. After his likeness, do you give yourself for your family? Do you know your family?
Do you care to know them? If you're not a member here at Christ the King, are you a member of God's family elsewhere? We won't fully understand who we are as Christians. We won't fully understand this identity of being in Christ or what it means to live the Christian life until we understand that the Christian life is life together. The Christian life is a life together. Or we are not here, you could say, we are not here just because we happen to have in common the fact that we all each have individual personal relationships with God. We come together as a family because according to God's word, our covenant relationship with Jesus and the way that Jesus has ordained to bring us to the end of our salvation the way he has ordained for us to be preserved from the devil's schemes is just irreducibly familial, relational. Yes, of course, individuals will be declared innocent, justified through their individual faith in the Lord Jesus, but the way that our salvation works, the way that in particular sanctification and glorification work, the way we work out our salvation, the way we grow into the image of the Son, is precisely in and in no other place than in the context of each other, of the church. The lonely or the solo Christian, the lone wolf Christian, is just a contradiction in terms. Look at the title of the sermon. It's glory in one another. Now you can take the word glory here kind of two ways. You can take it as a noun or you can take it as a verb. Both are true. It's true that the, that the fact is true that, that you are, your glory is in one another as, as Paul puts it here. But that also means it can be a verb. You are to glory in one another, to boast, therefore, in one another, to seek the glory of the other, propel one another on in the Christian life so that my salvation is a crown for you, testifying to your work in my life by the power of Jesus and his spirit. So we have our principle, you are the glory of one another. We've seen how this works out for Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the Thessalonians. And so how now does this work out for us? So I'd like to close this morning with six points from this text, six brief points for how we can glory in one another. Six ways to practice this reciprocal uh, model of the Christian life in which we give ourselves to one another for the sake of the glory of the body of Christ. The first way to glory in one another is to have, like Paul, like the Thessalonians, an eagerness for togetherness. An eagerness for togetherness. 
Paul clearly expresses that battle strategy here is for the church to stand firm, or for the church to stand firm, is, is for the ministry of the word and, and of the encouragement of believers to take place, as Paul puts it, face to face. Do not be, in other words, a family member in absentia. No matter how strong you think you are, you will go hungry. This has been the norm for God's people always, the norm to gather together, because this is what Christian people need. The means of grace, the word, and and the sacraments, the preaching, are all things that happen by their definition, when we are gathered. Of course, we have learned that there are times when serving your family may mean keeping your social distance or even meeting online, but these things are abnormal, right? They are not the new normal. In fact, during our time apart, I expect it did, and it ought to have even grown your eagerness to be together again, right? It's because we're designed that way. The biology of of the body of Christ is that we are strengthened when we exercise our fellowship with one another. All of the the communal aspects here of our church life, our our corporate worship, our Wednesday night prayer dinners, our potlucks, our home group ministries, all these ministries, they they are not the communal preparations For when we go out there and do the real thing of being individual, isolated believers in our personal relationship with Christ. No, these communal ministries are the context where we do the Christian life. So, take part in these family activities as as you are able, as is feasible for you. They are the context of your growth. Second way to glory in one another is through exhortations to steadfastness. Exhortations to steadfastness. Paul wanted to be there, and he he sent Timothy when he could not. He made the sacrifice of sending an emissary to be together with the Thessalonians when he could not. Not only to be present, but to speak. Chapter 3, Verses 3 and 4, notice it is through the word of God spoken through a co-worker that the church is made to be immovable. We need small talk because we need to know our family. But then we also need big talk. We need scriptural talk because I need to hear and you need to hear the truths of the gospel again and again because we keep on forgetting them. And Satan is always at war, a war he wages with lies. We need to share the truth with one another. Paul and Timothy needed to share the message that persecution was to be expected, and that it was meaningful. And when I'm suffering, I need to hear the same thing from my church. If you want to take joy, if you want to boast if you want to glory in one another, in the spiritual growth and in the salvation of your brothers and sisters, then use your words to spur them on. Use your words to spur them on. This leads to a a third way, to glory in one another, which is just that, to revel, to rejoice, to boast, 
in one another. This is to say rejoice with those who rejoice. There are particular sins, however, that harm this in the family of Christ, that get in the way of our desire to see each other grow in, in faithfulness. These are things like jealousy, greed, gossip, or, or perhaps creating exclusionary subfamilies within the family of Christ. These are, are signs of a, of a dysfunctional family. I've, I've been personally so blessed by some of you who would rejoice over me. There are some of you who have amazed me, who have humbled me because of how encouraging you were in a moment when at the same time I know you are suffering beyond anything I've ever faced. You are like Paul, who says, I'm alive if you're steadfast. On the day of the Lord, at that community event, we will all revel with each other, rejoice over one another. May we act like that now. A fourth way to glory in one another is to give thanks for one another. That is to actually see the imprint of God's work in your life and God's work through your life, to recognize it and to declare that it is from God and it is glorious. And so then to return the thanks to where it is due. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Look at this reciprocity. The Thessalonians are, are, are blessing Paul, and, and Paul returns the thanks to God, and in turn, Paul prays that God would use him to shore up their faith. The church grows and is strengthened just in this way, in the back and forth of blessings. We, we give ourselves to one another, and the thanks we owe returns to God as his due. Giving thanks for each other is an expression of that same thing that will take place on the day of the Lord when we will fully recognize the glory in one another and praise God for it. Thanksgiving is doing that now. Let's just get started. Fifth, pray for one another. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, Paul prays that God will use the word to establish the this, saints. This he prays earnestly because he understands there's a spiritual battle at stake. Your church family, people of God, is always, it is constantly under attack. And your family obligation is to come to their defense in prayer. Prayer is the means that God has ordained for us to actually participate in God's preservation of his saints, of one another. And finally, a sixth way to glory in one another is to do all of these things already mentioned and then to do them all the way, to follow through all the way. Look at how Paul ends his prayer with reference again to the day of the Lord when the fledgling congregation in Thessalonica will appear with Christ, but also with all the saints. We're in this struggle as a family until, if you will, the beautiful end. 
then it is beautiful because we already know, as we already know, Satan has been defeated at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, in the bitter world now, we fight together, we stand together, waiting to see what we know is our victory at the beautiful end of our fight. In this life, it starts when you as a congregation take vows at a covenant child's baptism. Right? It continues as we take more vows and we accept members as, as communing members as part of our church. People of God, are you keeping your vows to the family of God, to his whole family? And, and our obligation continues until we thank the Lord until we give Him glory and we revel and rejoice over your life and, and praise Him for His work through you when we bury one another and await for the resurrection. We fight together until the beautiful end. People of God, God's new creation, His new people is a communal one. You are in one another. Do not pursue the Christian life alone. Paul's understanding is that God works in your life precisely in and in no other place than in the mutual exhortation, the mutual encouragement, and mutual love that we share. Sharing in Christ's benefits together, spurring one another on towards Christ's likeness together, People of God, glory in one another. Let's pray. Lord, we ask humbly that by the grace you give through each of us to one another, you would establish us in your Son. Establish us in the likeness of your Son that we might radiate his glory. We thank you, Lord, for the sweet blessing it is that you've deigned to create for yourself a bride through community. We pray, Lord, you would seal all these things up in our hearts. We thank you for your good and your sweet words. We praise you and thank you and pray all these things in your son's holy, strong name. Amen.